0: people We the people We the people of the United States We the people of the United States in order to form a more perfect union establish justice ensure domestic tranquility, provide for the common sense, promote the general welfare, and secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity, Do ordain and establish this Constitution for the United States of America. In the summer of 1787, 55 men gathered in Philadelphia to consider how to make the government of the United States more perfect. Over the course of five months, they argued, debated, considered and rejected ideas, notions, and various systems. In the end, they created the Constitution of the United States, a document predicated on the idea that men can rule themselves by law. This is Constitution Thursday, a time when we look at the history, ideas, arguments, and interpretations of the Constitution, from its original creation to today, and how it affects our lives now. In 1998, a miracle happened in Paraguay. A young woman who had been badly injured in an accident, awoke from a 15-month coma. This was such a cause for celebration throughout Paraguay that the young woman was chosen to represent the nation on a very special mission. She would be sent, all expense paid, to the United States of America, but not to New York City, which is where she really wanted to go, but instead to Fremont, Ohio. This is where her trip would take her. Her journey would take her to Fremont, Ohio, not uh, not a place I would think would be highly ranking on anyone's I want to go to. She was sent there by the nation of Paraguay to honor one of its greatest heroes. She would visit his birthplace. She would also, later, represent the nation at his tomb. And who was this great hero for the nation of Paraguay that needed to be honored so greatly? Well, none other than Rutherford B. Hayes, the former president of the United States, the man whose election we've been talking about for some time now, the most contested election in the history of our nation, and indeed, I believe in many ways, the watershed moment at which our nation turned away from its honor, turned away from its values, turned away from its purpose and its accomplishment, for which it had greatly sacrificed, to instead pursue stupidity and a lost cause myth. We talked last week about the actual election when President Hayes finally won the White House, and amongst Republicans, there was great rejoicing. President Hayes gave a speech in the southern regions of our nation in which he explained to the freedmen and white Republicans who were there that he was not, in fact, abandoning them. That, in fact, he believed that if he showed moderation towards the South, that if he withdrew the troops and ended Reconstruction and and began to treat them more as equals rather than conquered, that they would come around, that they would begin to understand why it was so important that they moderate their own position towards the freedmen, towards the former slaves, and that they would begin to accept, and that more people—tell me if you haven't heard this argument recently— by becoming more moderate, would join the Republican Party, thus (laughs) thus expanding Republican tent throughout the nation. This is what he told them in a speech in 1877. Of course, nothing could be further from the truth about what was about to happen. Hayes faced numerous issues in his presidency, and we're not going to delve deep into these, but... You need to understand that there was a lot of things going on number one the panic of 1873 had led to an ongoing depression in many ways the worst depression the nation had ever faced president grant had seemed hopeless in dealing with this many people were destitute they were tired of the economic devastation that had ravaged the nation and it was a major issue in the campaign as we talked about the hard money versus the specie money The gold standard versus silver. A lot of those issues came about because of this depression of 1873 and and, and the problems that the nation was facing, and nobody seemed to know what to do or how to do anything about it. The depression continued on, even into Hayes' presidency, and while there were attempts made to resolve it, nothing just seemed to work. This led to greater and greater frustration. And, of course, in the South, it was seen as intentional economic distress being inflicted upon them by allowing African-American citizens now to take the jobs that the white folk used to have. They saw that as an attack and an extension of the Depression. Part Part of the outfall of the Depression was that the major railroad companies in those days, and there were many of them, but the railroads were the big business in America in in those days, colluded together to cut wages for railroad workers. They cut railroad wages by 10% in 1877, having cut them by 10% a few years earlier. This led to the Great Railroad Strike of 1877. And the Great Railroad Strike of 1877 is one of those moments in our history that we've forgotten about. President Hayes personally... Felt great sympathy towards the strikers. He believed that it was against the 13th Amendment to force them to go back to work, that it was essentially slavery to do so, and he wasn't going to have any part of that. On the other hand, his entire cabinet was made up of basically railroad men. All of the rich folks in America in those days were basically railroad men, and it didn't matter if you were Democrat or Republican. In fact, as we learned a few weeks ago, the Bourbon Republicans were heavily invested in business and supportive of business. They didn't believe in in uh, subsidies, but many of them were railroad people. And all of these railroad men prevailed upon the president that he had to do something. You must do something. You've got to stop this. They're burning down railroad stations. This is prelude to a revolution. And so Hayes used a rather curious interpretation of the Commerce Clause and part of, amend, uh, part of Article 4 to justify treating the strikers as a rebellion. He made each of the governors in question assure him that there was a state of rebellion in their states, even if there wasn't. And so he then sent in the troops, the very troops that he had pulled out of the South to encourage their proper behavior, and the troops inevitably ended up firing on the railroad strikers. U.S. Grant, the former president, the former general, observed that it was remarkable how Hayes had refused to use the troops to defend and protect the rights of citizens in the former Confederate States, specifically the freedmen, but he didn't seem to have much of a problem having them fire on strikers. This was seen as somewhat contradictory, but nevertheless it happened. The railroad strike was ended, the strikers were forced to go back to work, and there was a great deal of simmering resentment over that. At the same time, in the South, moonshine became a big thing. The United States, during the war, had begun to tax alcohol quite significantly, and so moonshiners became a thing, particularly in Appalachia in the South, where they would skirt the United States tax laws by brewing up their own shine, selling it, creating NASCAR. No, that came later. At any rate, the point being that they weren't real happy with the idea of paying taxes on this stuff. Again, left to what President Hayes referred to as self-government, he sent in federal agents to arrest and prosecute the Moonshiners. One of them, moon, one of the agents he sent in got shot and killed. They shot and killed others. And eventually, this led to a Supreme Court ruling that we're not going to go into today that made it clear that the moonshiners legally had no standing. And this led to a, an invasion of the South, not of an army, but basically of lawmen, whose entire purpose was to eliminate moonshining, like the current wars on social vices, It was marginally successful, but not hugely successful. One of the biggest issues that he faced, however, dealt with the territory known as Deseret at the time. Everybody else called it Utah. Nevada had been carved out of Deseret, and the territory of Utah shrunk down to basically what it is today as a state. And there was a good deal of question about what to do about Utah. Utah wanted to be a state. But Utah was full of Mormons. And whether you know this or not, Mormonism in the 1800s, particularly the second half of the 1800s, wasn't seen quite in the positive light that it might be seen today. In fact, it was pretty much reviled. It was seen as a cult, it was seen as anti-Christian, it was seen as all of these things, and don't send me email to me, Dee-dee-dee. I'm telling you what they saw it as. And of course, the biggest sin of Utah was polygamy. The president addressed this on numerous occasions, including famously in his State of the Union address in 1880, in which he outlined the fact that if Utah really wanted to be a state, they'd better be prepared to to give up polygamy. And if they weren't prepared to give up polygamy, there was no way that they were going to become a state. Polygamy was a a huge issue in those days. It's kind of surprising to us today because, you know, now it's on television as celebrated. But in the 1870s, it was a divisive issue. Now, again, keep in mind that President Hayes' public statements were that he wanted to allow states to self-govern themselves. But in the face of that, he told Utah, not you. You don't get to self-govern, you cannot have polygamy. Now there were some arguments for and against and we'll get into maybe we'll get into that in some future episode of Constitution Thursday. But reality was it flew in the face of his public statements certainly towards the south where he was allowing the southerners to run rampant over people at the same time he was telling utah thou shalt not and this created a great deal of resentment a great deal of problems a great deal of what's going on here why is this why is this this way and that was uh, argumentatively it was it was problematic and of course in the midst of all of this With the pullout of reconstructive troops in the South, the acknowledgement from President Hayes that they were going to be allowed to do their own thing, that they were going to be allowed to govern themselves, there was a beginning, an acceleration of the beginning of the, what would eventually be called Jim Crow laws, the segregationist ideas that would come to define the post-war South and, in some ways, the post-war nation. As I said last week, this this was a complete abandonment of everything that had been fought for, everything that had been struggled for, and Grant's observation that you'll use the troops to break up the strike, but you won't use the troops to defend the rights of freedmen is morally questionable. Hayes, in the meantime, was was struggling with all this, and he just didn't know he was in over his head. That, that much is perfectly clear. Over the course of a, of a few years, in the midst of all this era, around and during Hayes, the Supreme Court was beginning to take up cases that dealt with these issues. Now, keep in mind, we had passed the Reconstruction Amendments. We banned slavery in 1865. We granted citizenship and equal protection in 1866, and voting rights in 1870. All of this was granted to slaves who had been previous slaves, and now they no longer were. This was the whole point of Reconstruction, was to force the Southern states, the Confederate states, to accept this reality. And they simply refused to, as we talked about Carter Glass. We spit on the 15th Amendment. We will never stand for the Negro to vote in our Constitution, he said. The Supreme Court, over the course of probably mm, 20 years or so, around starting in 1875, took up some cases. The first case they took up was Cruikshank. Now, we talked rather extensively about Cruikshank during the Saturday podcast because it was um, until really McDonald. In 2008, Cruikshank was the the defining case for the Second Amendment in the United States. Not many people know that, but at its core, it really wasn't about that. At its core, Cruikshank was really about whether or not the Fourteenth Amendment applied to the states. Was it incorporated? In essence, the court heard the case and came to the conclusion that the government of the United States, although it is within the scope of its powers supreme and beyond the states, can neither grant nor secure to its citizens rights or privileges which are not expressly or by implication placed under its jurisdiction. All that cannot be so granted or secured are left to the exclusive protection of the states, meaning that the states can pass whatever laws they want, and as long as they don't violate the state constitution, then the Supreme Court, the United States government, Congress has no say in it. This was followed, a few years later, 1883, by five cases that had been combined together known as the Civil Rights Cases, in which the court found that the Constitution, quote, did not authorize Congress to create a code of municipal law for the regulation of private rights unquote, as distinct from state laws. In other words, what the court decided was that there was no way that you could legislate individuals from doing anything. In other words, if a person owned a hotel and they wanted that hotel to be whites only, there was no way you could pass a state law or a federal law to control the behavior of individuals it was up to the person themselves to decide what they were going to do with private property rights now the weird thing is is that many would today express a similar opinion it's my private property if i want to discriminate i can that's the argument as it goes and this is what the court agreed in 1883 that it was just fine and dandy for white people to discriminate against black folk by excluding them from commerce, 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 he said foreshadowingly. At that time, though, the court ruled that that was just fine and dandy. And, of course, in its most famous of these cases, and in what is rated as perhaps the worst Supreme Court decision outside of Dred Scott, the Plessy v. Ferguson case, which had to do with the state of Louisiana and its streetcar system, decided that it was okay to segregate as long as they were separate but equal. As long as everything was separate but equal, everything was fine, ruled the Supreme Court in 1896. Now again, many of these justices had been appointed by and were essentially Republican justices appointed by both Reagan and Hayes, later Garfield, and yet they took what had been done, what had been sacrificed for, what had been fought for, what had been won at such a great cost, and threw it out the window. We're not going to protect our black citizens from the discrimination and from the... (sighs) anger i guess of white citizens we're not going to do that we're just going to we're just going to pretend that if we make the tent big enough and moderate enough everybody will come in and that's what they stood for and of course this led to the expansion of jim crow laws in which case separate but equal was the law of the land although separate was certainly in there equal as the court would later rule was 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 problematic, yeah. You got it separated, but certainly not equal. And in one of the most damning time periods of our history, it became normal to say white here, colored there. This reserved for colored. This portion, this this box referred to colored, uh, reserved for colored patrons. White only. A. The, the film 42 does just such a wonderful job of portraying this where where uh, Jackie Robinson goes to los goes to from los angeles back to the uh, to the south i think it was georgia florida somewhere in there and his wife is is staring at the staring at the water fountain and says i i've never seen one of these before where it said white's here colored's there This went on for many years, folks, you got to understand. But all of this started when Reconstruction came to its end, when the Redeemers fought for the Southern control of their legislatures and governments with the sole intent purpose of, as Carter Glass said, spitting on the Fifth Amendment, 15th Amendment, sorry, the 15th Amendment. There was no way that they were ever going to accept that the Negro was equal to the white man. And this was the Democrat Party in the 1870s. This was what the Democrat Party believed then. This is what they fought for. And as I've said on numerous occasions, neither party looks good because the Republican Party let them get away with it. The Republican Party rolled over on everything it stood for, everything it believed, and everything it had sacrificed for. 300,000 lives. If we just moderate enough, they'll come around. The intriguing thing about this to me remains the the two myths, the lost cause myth, that the South was right. They were just fighting for their state's rights. They didn't want to have a big government ruling over them. And so many people believe that today that you're willing to put up a Confederate battle flag on your on your car or your truck or your house because you believe that the South was right Overall they were right. Just like just like Hitler was right. Made the train well, there's Mussolini who made the trains run on time. Hitler got rid of the Jews. All that other stuff. Yeah, we get it. I mean it was bad, but you know, the general idea, as Marge Schott once said, was okay. The idea that the South, the Confederacy, was right in its struggle against an oppressive centralized government is complete and total nonsense. It's a complete myth made up after the fact to justify and rationalize the behavior of Jim Crow to allow it to happen. And instead of standing up to it like Rutherford B. Hayes promised he would do in his campaign, (laughs) shrugged his shoulders and said, you know, I'm more worried about railroad strikes and polygamists and moonshiners. We gotta get rid of those. And to this day, this myth pervades our country to the point where, again, as I as I've noted before, there are more Confederate memorials than there are Union memorials. There are more people who will tell you that the flag is just about heritage than there are who will tell you what it really stood for, which was slavery the men who fought under that banner the men who served under that banner believed that the negro could never be equal to the white man and should be forever in bondage never a citizen and even after they lost that war they continued a political fight to make it happen well into the 21st well into the 20th century the second half of the 20th century and just like the lost cause myth they invented this other myth that all well, the two parties tried, Which side? see now the Democrats are pro-African American it's the Republicans that are the racists because they had to if they didn't if they didn't invent that myth on top of it what would we have to discuss today throughout our history it was the Bourbon Democrats and the Redeemers who fought for the right, the control, the ability to enforce racial segregation and discrimination as law in this country. If you go read the Jim Crow laws and then go read the Nuremberg laws and tell me what's the difference, there isn't any. But that's what these people believed would happen. History gets written by the winners, as the saying goes. Why is that so? Didn't the Confederacy lose the war, Dave? Yeah, they lost the war. They lost the war. The Vietnamese lost every battle they fought in in the Vietnam War. Well, against us. But they won the war, didn't they? The Confederacy, the idea of the Confederacy, the idea of racial domination won in the end because bad ideas don't just go away, do they? They don't just disappear when they're defeated militarily. They rewrite the history so that it looks like they were good. The South was right. We just, you know, there were a few problems with it, but overall it was right. Except it never was. And the Republican Party, to its great shame, to its embarrassment, to its Lincoln is rolling over in his freaking grave, the Republican Party... Let it go. They just said, okay, we don't care. We don't want to deal with it anymore. And they didn't. And yes, there were racists in the Republican Party, and I get that. Yes, there were there were people who weren't really comfortable with the idea of black folk being equal to white folk, but they didn't want them being slaves, you know. But that's not the same thing, is it? The Lost Cause myth was created... To hide something. It was written, it was created to hide the fact that the Confederacy was evil. It was evil. It wanted, it believed wholeheartedly in owning slaves. That's its entire purpose. That's what it was. It took advantage of the ignorance of people who didn't want to deal with it anymore. It took the advantage of the ignorance of Republicans who somehow forgot for. that that ground had been hallowed by men who fell. Changed the times. It changed everything. It allowed things to happen that should never have been allowed to happen. That we didn't believe in. That it all happened because Ruthford B. Hayes in some ways... Now I, I Look, I'm a historian. Hayes was the guy there when it happened. Would have happened if Tilden was elected? Absolutely, it would have happened if Tilden was elected, but he wasn't. Hayes made a deal with the devil. The Republican Party made a deal with the devil to get Hayes in the White House for the express purpose of protecting those rights, for the express purpose of maintaining at least an illusion of believing in those rights, and they didn't. Times changed. Things went on. What very few people know is that in the midst of the American Civil War, in the men and, and after the American Civil War lasted longer than our Civil War did, the war of the Triple Alliance was going on in Central South America. Paraguay, in the middle of all this, there was a revolt going on in Brazil. There was a civil war actually going on in Brazil over the issue of slavery. And ultimately, slavery was banned in Brazil. Argentina was part of this. Paraguay, Uruguay, all of these nations. And somehow or another, Paraguay, which found itself in the middle of all this, chose, uh, they thought they chose a side, but it turned out that they were really, everybody got mad at them and started attacking them. Paraguay, in the midst of this war, lost nearly 70% by some accounts of its population to both combat deaths and to illness sickness pestilence at one point araguay was so short of weapons and arms that they were carving sticks to look like guns so that they could fool their opponents into thinking they had some badly defeated And on the brink of extinction, they took up guerrilla warfare, which went on for several more years, into the presidency of Rutherford B. Hayes. The parties, particularly Argentina and Paraguay, began to talk about the fact that this is this this war is insane. We need to settle this. Paraguay lost but wasn't willing to necessarily just give up everything and go into non-existence, which was what was about to happen to them. And into all of this, they decided the three countries that were involved, Paraguay, Argentina, and Brazil, decided to ask, there was no United Nations then, they decided to ask the United States to arbitrate the war. And... Rutherford B. Hayes, President of the United States, sent a letter to the three participants saying, after careful consideration, after blah, 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 I have decided that Paraguay gets to keep this portion of the country that is disputed. And in one of the more remarkable things in history, all three sides went, okay, okay, and the war of the Triple Alliance ended with Rutherford B. Hayes saving, literally <laughs> saving the nation of Paraguay. And to this day, the reason the young woman was sent to Fremont, Ohio to honor President Hayes was that they think that President Hayes is the greatest thing since sliced bread. They think that President Hayes is the greatest president in the history of the United States. In point of fact, if you were to look at a map of Paraguay, you could zoom in on that map, you will discover something very interesting. There is an entire state in Paraguay named Presidente Hayes. And the state capital of that particular Hayes is named Villa Hayes. It's named after Rutherford B. Hayes because they honor him so great greatly. The truth of the matter is... The President Hayes probably didn't even know what he was signing when he sent that letter. It was hammered out by the State Department. They brought him a letter saying, here, sign this. He probably spent 10, 15 seconds. He might have read it, and then signed it, and sent it on its way, and completely forgot about it. In the midst of the Mormons, the moonshiners, the railroad strike, the Depression, in the midst of Jim Crow laws being... Inflicted upon our country, President Hayes found time to sign his name to a simple letter that saved an entire country. And to this day, I'm not making this up, you can look it up yourself, Paraguayans do not understand why we do not honor Rutherford B. Hayes like they do. Times change. History becomes a moment of perspective, doesn't it? It becomes... A a look at where we are with something, how we experience something, how we see things. We rate President Hayes in the bottom percentages of our presidential polls. You know, those best presidents ever. We rate him in the bottom. Of course, Woodrow Wilson consistently makes it in the top. But be that as it may, but for Paraguay, he was the right man at the right time. For the freedman, for the white Republican in the South, for the Mormon, for the moonshiner, for the railroad striker, they would just assume he never existed. And that's the legacy of Rutherford B. Hayes. The question is what do we learn from it? Do we begin to understand the evilness of lost cause mythos, myths. Mythos. <laughs> Myths? Do we begin to understand why there's this constant refrain that the two parties have switched sides? Do we begin to question ourselves about why we believe certain things that may not be the way they were? Do we really believe in the Constitution? Do we really support and defend it? Or only when it's convenient? Are we true to ourselves, our values? our beliefs, or are we true to the myth? And only you can answer that question for you. And it's a very hard question if you take the time to think about it.